Well, good morning, Keystone. It's good to be with you. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity to hang out with you for a little while and talk to you about something that I think is really important. is how do we manage trouble in, in our own lives? But first, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. I know my Thanksgiving was different this year than it's ever been, and probably yours is, as well. But I have to tell you, my Thanksgiving got a whole lot better yesterday because yesterday afternoon, the Spartans of Michigan State University defeated the undefeated Northwestern Wildcats. And then in the evening, frosting on the cake, the men's basketball team took it to Notre Dame. And what a wonderful day for Spartans. We had a football game, a basketball game, both victorious. The season can end right now because we don't want to risk anything else happening in the course of the coming year. Anyway, for the last eight weeks, Brady's been teaching us virtual Israel. He's taken us to eight different locations so that we could get a sense of what it was like back when the people of Israel were coming out of Egypt and moving into the Promised Land. Each time we stopped at a different location, he would teach us a lesson that was important for us to have today. And the good news is we're going back to Israel in January, virtually, that is. The series has been creatively titled Virtual Israel 2. Now, if they had asked me, I had a much better title. It would have been Virtual Israel 2.0, because that's more contemporary, more techie-like. But they didn't ask me, and so we're stuck with Virtual Israel 2. But the beauty of it is we're going to go into northern Israel now, whereas before we were in southern Israel. Now we're going to go into central and northern Israel and look at the sites that go with the life and ministry of Jesus. So you want to make sure you're going to be tuning in for that. Today, however, I want to take you to another biblical land, a place where I think good and important events take place that are instructive to us in our own lives. It's primarily the focus of the New Testament. Once you get out of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which were about Jesus, this takes us into another region, which is really focusing on a man named Paul. Some of you may have heard about him already. He's a first century pastor, also a church planter, a church starter, and he traveled throughout a whole region of another part of the Mediterranean world to do the ministry that God had called him to. Where we take to today is the country of Greece. We're going to do a virtual tour of Greece. It's one of my favorite places. We're going to ultimately end up in Corinth, down in the southern part of Greece. But having led tours in Greece and in Israel, we're going to find some fascinating sites, including to me, the Corinth site, which is probably one of the most interesting and instructive sites of all time. It's a marketplace in this picture that you're going to see here. These are the ruins, partial ruins of, of ancient Greece. This area right in here is the old marketplace, which is going to come into play in just a few moments when we start looking at the passage that we're going to be examining today in the Bible. Up here on the top, on this rocky outcropping, is the Temple of Aphrodite, which was a very pagan, uh, decrepit kind of place. And uh, when you get to Greece, when you start going through the, the particularly the, the ruins of Corinth, you begin to understand Paul's mission and work so much more effectively. So, this is where we want to go. We oftentimes think that if I'm just following Jesus and probably obeying him and doing what he says I should do, then my life ought to be trouble-free. I mean, that's the deal, right? It's a transaction. I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going to do the right things, and he's going to give me a trouble-free life. 
Well, we're going to follow the Apostle Paul as he makes a journey actually from the northern part of Greece all the way down to the south in Corinth. And we're going to keep looking at that question. Are we given a trouble-free life? And if we're not, then the question is, how do I manage when trouble comes? We begin in Troas. Here's the Aegean Sea. This is modern-day Greece. Over here you have modern-day Turkey. Paul is right now in the city of Troas. It's a seaport town, and he's struggling because he doesn't know which way he needs to go. Does he go up north into Europe, or does he go across over into Greece, and eventually he wants to make his way to Rome? So he is praying. He's praying for God's direction. And he says, God, please show me what you want. Where do I need to go? What's the direction that I need to have? And one night, God gives him a vision. And in his vision, he sees this man of Macedonia. And he's speaking to Paul, and he says, come, we need your help in Macedonia. Come and help us. And the next few days, as quickly as possible, Paul and his traveling companions begin to make their way from Troas off now into the northern area up here to Philippi. They've entered Macedonia, which ultimately becomes modern-day Greece. When he gets to Philippi, Paul does as he always does when he goes into a new city. He looks for the places that the Jews are gathering. If there's a synagogue there, that's where he heads so he can teach and, and proclaim Jesus in the synagogue. And if there's not a synagogue, then there's probably a place of prayer. And that's what he finds in Philippi. He goes to the place of prayer where the Jews would gather. It's a small cluster of people in Philippi. But he goes there and he prays with them and he tells them about Jesus. And some of them become Jesus followers. One day as he and his friends are coming away from the place of prayer, they're accosted by a slave girl. This slave girl is demon-possessed. And she's able to tell the fortune, the future for people. The owners of the slave girl are making a lot of money off of her. And for several days, she follows Paul and his friends, and she keeps saying that, listen to him. He's standing here telling you about the Most High God. Eventually, Paul says, I can't have her doing this anymore. And he turns and he casts out the demon. He frees this young girl from the demon that had been possessing her. Now, you would think that would be a good thing, right? That would be a positive event unless you were the owner of that girl. Because now you've suddenly lost your revenue stream. She was making you lots of money. People were paying her well for her to tell their fortune. And so they go to the magistrates, they go to the rulers, and they have Paul and Silas, his one of his traveling companions, arrested. And they are beaten. And then they are placed into the Philippian jail. I have a picture of the Philippian jail, at least what archaeologists believe to be the Philippian jail. When you go to, to Philippi in Greece, this is part of what you will see in the ruins. This may well have been the place that Paul and Silas were imprisoned after they were beaten. Now, there's a miraculous story about their delivery. We don't have time to get into all of that, but suffice it to say that eventually God frees them from that prison, and they move from Philippi, where they're no longer welcome, to the next city, which is Thessalonica. So we follow them now, coming along the coastline over into this area. Thessalonica is the largest city. It has a synagogue, and Paul is in there 
Sabbath day after Sabbath day, teaching the people about Jesus. Some begin to follow him. Some of the Jews see that Jesus is, Jesus is their Messiah. And some of the God-fearing Greeks that were there also become Jesus followers. So there's some initial success when he gets to Thessalonica, but then some of the other Jews begin to push back. And they actually go out into the marketplace in Thessalonica, hire some thugs to come and threaten and, and really take care of Paul and his traveling companions. Because the situation was so unstable and uncertain, friends helped Paul to escape in the middle of the night because their lives were in danger. And they traveled down just a little ways farther down to Berea, a small village. Again, he starts to become uh, involved in telling the Jews about Jesus, and they're receptive. When, when the rec record is written about this visit to Berea, things are said like this, the people of Berea are more noble than others because they listened carefully to what was being said so that they could know and they searched the scriptures daily to find out if what they were being told was indeed true. But the success that Paul was having in Berea was quickly undermined because some of the Jews who were attacking him in Thessalonica heard about what was happening in Berea, and so they came down to again attack Paul. Some of the Bereans help Paul alone to escape. They take him down and they end up in Athens. When Paul gets down to Athens, he is dismayed as he walks through the city. Everywhere he looks, he sees idols. Idols upon idols upon idols. It's a pagan city. There's a lot of unholy worship taking place there. But he notes as he walks along that in one of the, one of the places, there's this statue to the unknown God. And he sees that as his entree into the conversation with the people of Athens about Jesus. You could find Paul in Athens on the Sabbath day in the synagogue teaching the Jews about Jesus. You could find him during the week in the marketplace teaching anyone who came by him about Jesus. And along the way, some of the philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics, kind of the people who said anything goes and nothing goes, they said, we want to hear more. And so they invited Paul to come with them to their place of discussion. It's called the Areopagus, or we oftentimes know it as Mars Hill. And I have a picture of Mars Hill. It's this rocky outcropping here, which sat high and overlooked the city. You can go there today. We've, we've stood atop Mars Hill. And you can imagine Paul sitting there with the, the philosophers and the leading citizens of, of Athens, telling them about Jesus, having this conversation, trying to help them to understand that he is indeed the Savior, the Lord. But the philosophers loved to discuss. They just didn't want to believe. They loved to have conversation. They wanted to explore the, the concepts, but they had no interest at all in becoming followers of Jesus. And so Paul eventually says, forget this. I don't want to waste my time here. And he makes his way on down to Corinth, the final stop in his journey. It's about a three-day walk if you're walking from Athens to Corinth. Today, when you take the bus that takes you from Athens to Corinth, it's about an hour's drive. 
well, actually, it's a little bit more than that because there's the obligatory stop here at the, the Corinthian Canal for coffee and gift shop. Uh, but it's an interesting little ride, and you begin to understand when you get to what is now the Corinthian Canal that joins these two bodies of water, you also see the old tracks that maybe in Paul's day would have been how they got the goods from one body of water to the other. When he gets to Corinth, he is there alone. He's left his traveling companions back up in Thessalonica and Berea. He is on his own. And so we move on. What is Corinth? This is an artist's rendering of Corinth. And you can see that it's a pretty good-sized seashore city. The population there would put in excess of 200,000 people. It was actually larger than Athens when Paul arrived there. It was a major commerce port as goods were brought in, trucked across land, and then shipped off on other ships on the other side. When Paul enters Corinth, you can see here, this is the place of government and, and uh, one of the religious places. There were several in Corinth. And then also this large marketplace as well. It's probably 52 or 53 A.D. when Paul gets to Corinth. So roughly 20 years after Jesus walked on this earth, 20 years after he was crucified, buried, raised again, and ascended to heaven. And Paul is now in Corinth. Now, let's go back to the question we started with. Does following Jesus and does obeying Jesus really result in a trouble-free life? It didn't for Paul. It certainly didn't happen for him. You recognize that when Paul went through this journey that we just traced, he had a beating, he was in prison, he had two forced escapes in the middle of the night, he had some people who would follow Jesus, but many more who rejected him. And when he arrives in Corinth, instead of traveling companions with him, he arrives all alone. How do you think Paul felt at that time? Well, this is what he wrote when he was writing a letter back to the church in Corinth years after this initial visit. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaim to you the testimony of God. Notice what he says. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. These had been troublesome times for Paul, difficult times. It had not gone well. He had done things right. He had sought God's direction, and he had followed what he believed God wanted him to do. He spoke of Jesus wherever he went. Still, he had trouble. So what does this mean for you and me? What does it mean when you and I try to do right and still trouble comes? What do we do when trouble comes? Well, let's see what we can learn from the Apostle Paul, this pastor, this church starter, this wonderful soldier of the faith in Jesus Christ. We read in Acts chapter 18, after this, after all the things that I've just been telling you about, Paul left Athens and went because he was a tent. Whoop, back up just a second here. There we go. 
Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Paul gets to Corinth, and he is alone. But he begins to search out people that he can be with, people who will encourage him, and people that he can spend time with. He finds Aquila and Priscilla. Now, I want to just stop for a quick second, because the fact that Priscilla is also mentioned with her husband, Aquila, is significant. Because women had no status in that culture and in that time. Yet, here we're beginning to recognize that when Jesus comes into our lives and into our circumstances, women and men have value. It's not just the men. She's mentioned here, and later on, they return to Rome, and Paul, when he writes to the church in Rome, speaks highly again of Aquila and Priscilla, and they actually had a house church that met in their home in Rome. So here's Paul. He's now in Corinth. He's connected with Aquila and Priscilla. And we know that in 49 AD, uh, the Roman governor kicked all the Christians out of Rome because, first of all, they wouldn't worship the Roman Empire, or the Roman emperor, rather. And secondly, they were trying to convert people from that religion to the true religion. So Claudius said, you've got to go. You've got to leave Rome. We don't want you here anymore. When Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla, they have two things in common. One is, somewhere along the line, this couple came to faith in Jesus. They were trusting him. And secondly, they had a trade in common. Every time I walk through the marketplace ruins in Corinth, I imagine Paul and Aquila and Priscilla setting up shop in one of those areas. And I can imagine how it will work. I think Aquila and Priscilla were probably working harder at tent making, and Paul is trying to talk to people about Jesus as they pass by. He said, hey, you know, we got good tents over here, but let me tell you about something even more important. Let me tell you about Jesus. But there they are. Paul has made new friends. On the Sabbath, he goes to the synagogue to tell others of Jesus. And in time, the friends that he left up in Berea make their way down to join him in Corinth. We read it this way. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. He stopped all of his tent making, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his robes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Paul had a heart for the Jews, but he found opposition. He was a Jew. He saw Jesus as the fulfillment of the prophecies in the Old Testament that the Jews were looking for, the Messiah, the one they were waiting for. And when they rejected him, and not just rejected, began to oppose him and rebel against him, he said, enough of this. I will now go not to the Jews, but to the Gentiles because they need to hear about Jesus too. Trouble continues to plague Paul 
Everywhere he goes, he faces difficulties. And he becomes discouraged and fearful because of what he is experiencing. That's when God appears to him again in a vision. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you. Don't be afraid, Paul. Now, Paul certainly had reason to be afraid, right? I mean, he had been beaten, he had been put in prison, he had been chased out of several towns, his life had been threatened on multiple occasions, and he had reason to be discouraged. The message he is bringing is a message of truth, of Jesus. But it was being ignored by some, rejected by others, and vigorously opposed by still others. Yes, there was reason for discouragement. There was reason for fear. And so what does God promise him? Two things. First, that he was with him. That he was not alone. He may have felt alone, but he was not alone. He was never alone. God's presence is the perfect antidote to fear. When we find ourselves in troubled circumstances, we need to recognize that God is there with us. It's always been true, and it will always be true. Secondly, no one's going to harm you. That's what God said. Which was an important concept for Paul to embrace because of what happens next in our story. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, now, that's like the governor of that region. And again, we know when Paul was in Corinth because we know when Gallio was the proconsul. It was 52, 53 AD. So that's when Paul was there. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. Keep that in mind because I'm going to show you a picture in just a few moments of the place of judgment. I want you to see it. They brought Paul to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. We go on. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the Pope Consul. And Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. I love that little bit of detail. He didn't care what was happening there. Now, let me show you another picture. This is a picture from Corinth. This area here is the seat of judgment. It's a large platform. It would have been where Gallio sat that day pronounce judgment on whatever complaints were being brought before him. It's called the judgment seat or the bema seat. It's the place of judgment. In front of it is this pillar. And on the other side of that pillar, you'll see an iron ring. So that if you are there to be judged and now beaten as Sosthenes was, you would kneel at this pillar. They would bind your hands around the ring, around the pillar, onto that ring, and you would be beaten there. Now imagine what was happening that day. 
Gallio is sitting up here, looking down as Sosthenes is being beaten down here, and he doesn't care. It's a pretty sobering place to stand when you begin to think of the lack of care for people and the disregard for what is right. God has more for Paul in that vision, however. I want to look at it one more time. There we go. Then the crowd turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him. For, okay, and then keep going. There we go. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in the vision, do not be afraid. We've already talked about that. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. What did God say to Paul? Keep speaking. Don't be silent. Trouble is not going to be a reason for you to be silent, Paul. Just because things are hard, just because things are difficult, it doesn't mean that you get to stop talking about Jesus. Continue telling them of Jesus. And Paul did. He settled down. And he stayed in Corinth a year and a half, longer than he stayed in any of the other cities where he went to plant new churches. Which brings me to our big idea for today. Following Jesus doesn't mean freedom from trouble, but it does mean peace when trouble comes. Just because you're following Jesus doesn't mean your life gets to be exempt from difficulties and troubles, but it does mean that you can have peace when trouble comes. I don't know what trouble you're facing today, but I can make some pretty good assumptions based on things that I do know happening within the, the Keystone community. I know that with the COVID and all the, all the restrictions and all the dynamics that that brings, marriages have been stressed. And some marriages have failed in the course of these last months. I know that people are stressed because their children are suddenly home for school instead of at school, and that creates work problems, and it creates tensions in the home, and who's going to stay home, and how are these kids going to be educated? I know along the, the way over these last months there have been deaths, that death of a spouse, death of a child, uh, death of a parent, that Thanksgiving had an empty chair because someone is no longer present. Jobs have been lost. Businesses are, are hanging by a thread in some instances. There have been serious health diagnoses, cancers, surgeries, uh, heart issues. People have struggled with depression and anxiety. Uh, some of the addictions that were being held at bay have, have come back, and alcoholism or pornography uh, or cutting are on increase. And even some have talked of suicide. There's lots of trouble. So what are we to do when this trouble comes? What do we do? Well, sometimes we learn from what people tell us. And sometimes we learn best from what people do. And in this instance, we're going to learn from Paul and what he did. Understand that, first of all, when trouble comes, we need people. Paul needed people. He had Aquila and Priscilla, and later on, his travel companions, Silas and Timothy and others, came and visited with him. 
and encourage him. Trouble, however, tends to make us want to withdraw, to pull back, to isolate ourselves, which is not a good thing to do. We need old friends and we need new friends that can encourage us and walk with us and help us through difficult times. We need people who will help us to stay active, whether it's just inviting us out to go for a walk or, or to just sit with us and chat over a cup of Starbucks is my preference. But we need people. When trouble comes, we cannot, we dare not isolate ourselves. We need people to walk with us. Secondly, when trouble comes, we need courage. Courage because it's difficult to be in trouble. It brings fear. It brings anxiety. But we trust in a God who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. We trust in a God who says, I have everything under my control. Even when we don't think it's under control, it's still under his control. We trust in a God who makes us strong when we are weak, who gives us courage when we are timid and afraid. We trust in a God who meets every need when we have that need. And so he gives us courage. Our courage doesn't come from within us, what we can muster, because we're already afraid and full of anxiety. It has to come from him when trouble comes. And third, we need hope. Trouble discourages us. It makes us think that life is never going to get any better, that it's always going to be this way. But a heart of thankfulness makes us hopeful for the future. Paul was told to keep on speaking. I think we need to keep on being thankful, even in difficulties. Because when we are thankful, it turns our focus away from the difficulty of the moment to the bigger picture of what God has been and continues to be doing that is good and praiseworthy. So when trouble comes, we need people, we need courage, we need hope. And the result of all of that, in the end, is that we have peace. True peace. Listen to what Jesus said. One of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled. And do not be afraid. The bridge over troubled water is Jesus. And when we surround ourselves with good people who keep us focused and encourage us and help us, when we have the courage that comes from trusting in the God who is in control and with us every step of the way, when we become thankful for the little things that we see God doing, the, the little gifts of tenderness and grace and goodness and faithfulness, we find ourselves enveloped in peace. The kind of peace that only comes from a relationship with Jesus. So whatever your trouble, I hope you know peace today. I hope you know the kind of peace that Jesus gives. And like we always do, I want to begin to wrap it up with, with some questions for you. Some things that you can talk about going forward with your friend, family, your friends. First of all, I want you to name four friends. Four friends you can count on to help you when trouble comes. And what makes you trust them to help you? I oftentimes say to guys, 
Who are you going to call at 2 o'clock in the morning that you know will answer the phone and get out of bed and come and help you? Who are your four friends that you can count on? Name them and then tell why you can trust them. Secondly, tell about a time of trouble when a friend's presence gave you strength and courage. How do God's promises give you strength and courage when troubles come? So take it, first of all, from the human side. A time when friends came alongside of you. And then, how does that help us with the promises of God? And finally, specify five things for which you are thankful today. And how does thankfulness in a time of trouble help lead you to hopefulness? Those are the questions I ask you to, to think about, talk about, contemplate for yourself and with your family or friends. Because when trouble comes, as it will, we need to know how to deal with it well. Well, thanks for being with us. Let me close in prayer, and we will ask God's blessing on all that we've been doing today. Father, we are grateful that you are faithful to us and that you are fully capable of helping us through any trouble that we face. And so we ask that you will help us in troubled times, the troubles we face today and the troubles we will face tomorrow. Bring around us the people that will be an encouragement to us. Help us to find our courage in you and not in ourselves and what we can do. And may we find hope, hope that springs from a thankful heart, so that our lives in troubled times reflect the kind of peace that Jesus promises, that Jesus gives, a peace that is bigger than our trouble. May our lives as followers of Jesus be marked by peace in these days. We pray this in the strong and powerful name of our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week, and we'll see you back here again next week Sunday for another time of worship.